Hear God's call to worship in Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Congregation of our Lord, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Lift up your hearts and receive his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's continue to worship by turning to sing together Psalm 99a, all the stanzas of 99a. Gracious God and Father in heaven, 
We come to you together on the first day of this week, a new week, on the day in which our Lord Jesus arose triumphant from the dead. And we thank you for the freedom that we have to gather publicly and join our voices in song. We thank you for the spiritual freedom that we have so that we may draw near to you, that we have access to your holy throne. Despite our unworthiness, you receive us as dear children for the sake of your faithful promises in Christ Jesus, because of your great love with which you've loved us, made us your own people. Lord, we thank you for your gracious care for us. We've experienced it again in this past week. You have preserved our souls in life. You have blessed us with an abundance of material gifts, the enjoyment of food and drink, the enjoyment of uh, your creation, the enjoyment of work and families, and so many blessings that you lavish upon us. Lord, we acknowledge that we truly live from day to day by your will, and we are just as dependent upon you for all these things as those who don't know where their next meal is coming from. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And we thank you for uh, your grace and mercy to us in caring for our physical needs, but also for our spiritual needs. We are spiritually needy, and we depend upon a constant supply of your grace through your Holy Spirit. You keep us in the faith by your power. You renew our lives so that we may persevere in this spiritual battle that we're engaged in, that we might fight the fight of faith, this good fight that uh, you have called us to, and do so with confidence, do so with renewed hope and energy, as your mercies are also new every morning. And we thank you for this special day in which we may be strengthened and refreshed and uh, your house. We may be uh, reminded of the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus together. We may join our voices in songs of praise and, and worship. And we have your special promises also to meet with us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would hear our request to fulfill your word and bless us in your grace. We pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, we might know that fellowship with you through our Lord Jesus Christ, the assurance of your love for us, and also the, the renewing, strengthening work of your Spirit through your word, renewing our faith and uh, restoring us with desires after a life of, of godliness and service of your name. You know, Lord, you take pleasure in those who fear you and those who hope in your mercy. And so we would hope in your mercy revealed in Jesus Christ. We acknowledge our many sins, our transgressions. Uh, they're more than the hairs of our head. We can identify specific sins that characterize us individually. And we pray that you would forgive us and that you would strengthen us in our calling to uh, mortify the deeds of the body and to indeed live by faith in the Son of God. Do so humbly, knowing whoever, that, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
May your word humble us so that we might be exalted with your promises and your grace. Uh, You will beautify your people with salvation. And we pray that you would carry on this work among us and in your people throughout the world. We are but a small part of your people that worship you on this day from every uh, language, every nation. And may your name be greatly praised. May your kingdom advance. Your name be glorified in the the sanctification of your church and the salvation of many. May many hear the gospel call this day and be brought into your everlasting kingdom. And so we pray that the Lord Jesus may be exalted as the only Savior and the only King. Help us to do that with purpose of heart. Hear our requests for the sake of this mediator who, who always lives, even now at your right hand, exalted in glory who yet as a high priest intercedes for us, in whose name we pray, amen. This time let us give our reverent attention to God's holy will as we read his law this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we'll begin reading with, uh, at verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Just before Israel entered the land of uh, Canaan, which God had promised to them to bring them in, uh, Joshua spoke to the people, he exhorted them, saying, 
Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And in response to his exhortation to serve the Lord, the people said, uh, we will serve the Lord. We will not serve other gods. And then you have Joshua's response. It's actually quite uh, shocking. Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. And you may think, that seems to be so contrary to the promise of mercy and forgiveness that is assured to God's people. Why does Joshua say that? Well, the reason is that he suspected that their claims of devotion and intention to serve the Lord were not entirely sincere. And by this response, he makes clear that it's no light thing to serve the Lord, that you can't serve the Lord and cling to your idols. And our Lord Jesus Christ is a Savior, uh, not only from the guilt of sin, but from the dominion and power of sin. And we can't be confident in forgiveness unless we're also seeking to put away the idols of our hearts. And that's the exhortation that follows. Joshua then said that they must put away uh, the idols and warn them that if they forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, that he would turn and do them harm. So this is not uh, contrary to the gospel of forgiveness but it also makes clear that forgiveness involves faith in God. And it involves a turning away from sin as we seek not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the grace of deliverance more and more from the sins that otherwise would rule our lives. Let us sing together in response to God's law. Uh, number 178 stands as 1, 2, and 3, this, psalm of, uh, this song of confession and faith.
prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 12, Zechariah 12. through the chapter. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. And that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. And that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the morning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei, Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text this morning begins uh, with these words, the burden of the word of the Lord. And uh, the last time we heard that language was the beginning of chapter 9. And so we have here an indication of, a, of another distinct prophecy, another uh, word of the Lord, an oracle. And uh, this language, the burden of the Lord, indeed suggests a heavy message and 
Interestingly, it's a message that's described as against Israel. And uh, that raises the question, how do we understand that in view of the actual content of this chapter that seems to be all for Israel? In other words, it's uh, an assurance. Uh, we have these promises of, of protection. We have these promises of deliverance. Well, those promises and that assurance is to serve as a wake-up call. A wake-up call. You see, disbelief or indifference to the triumph of God's kingdom, that's what leads people to occupy themselves with the things of this world. And this burden of the Lord against Israel also serves as a rebuke then to, to many of the Jews who had remained in Babylon. Despite that now, after 20 years, the temple had been rebuilt. And yet many of those who were uh, summoned and who had the freedom to return had not yet returned. We need to remember that there were various successive waves of the Jews returning to the land of Palestine according to the freedom that God had secured for them and the summons to return. And yes, there was that first wave of uh, captives that returned and built the temple, but Ezra had not yet arrived with the many thousands that came with him. In fact, that wouldn't take place for 70 years after that initial return. And 10 years later, Nehemiah would come with more people returning to the land. And so that involves a kind of rebuke to these people and a summons to believe in God's promise. Maybe they were afraid that Jerusalem was not yet secure enough, that it was too risky to return. But this is a passage that assures people of God's protecting care for his people. The Lord is the Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the Almighty Creator who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Even the present tense of this passage shows God's present active power for whom nothing is impossible. As the Almighty God, He is able to come with power and grace, power to judge, grace to help and save. And so nothing can thwart His power to, to fulfill His word. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's kind of a New Testament summary of uh, the teaching that's before us in this passage. God will save Jerusalem from every enemy. That's our theme that we're going to consider here this morning from this passage. And uh, that salvation, as it's described here, involves the defeat of all opposition. And I say all opposition without qualification. Now that's what we hear in the language that's repeated again and again. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Verse 6, They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. 
Verse 9, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And we must not mistake that language as if God will seek to do it and perhaps not be able to do it. No, it's the assurance of the obliteration, the destruction of all the nations that come against Israel. Now, that raises questions, right? When we consider the literal meaning of this uh, expansive language, this complete assurance of, of uh, the destruction of the surrounding nations, and we'd ask, when did that take place? How does that take place? Will it take place? Well, in answer to that question, for one thing, we have to notice the language that's repeated throughout this chapter and in the next chapters. That repeated language, in that day, in that day. And it's like every other verse, in that day. Well, what does that day refer to? What does it mean? That language is continued in the next chapter uh, in, in close connection and in a synonymous relationship with the day of the Lord. So it's a prophecy concerning the day of the Lord, the day of God's mighty intervention, the day of God's working, a day of judgment, and a day of salvation. A day of salvation through Christ. There's no mistaking that. In verse 13, or verse 1 of the next chapter, we'll consider that, Lord willing, next time. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Well, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The poet has put this to words when he says there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. Referring to an abundant supply of cleansing for all sin and uncleanness. Of course, that's a day that uh, we know refers to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ whereby he obtained salvation for all peoples who trust in him. Now that leads us to, to see that this day that is spoken of is not to be thought of as a literal 24-hour day. In fact, this chapter, as well as subsequent chapters, speak of events that are actually separated in time. There's often that prophetic outlook in the scripture where events that are actually separated in time are spoken as if uh, they are close together in proximity time-wise. Right? You hear that in the way Peter uh, explains the significant, uh, significance of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And it's a day of fire and judgment. And this language speaks of a day of events which actually are separated in time. Actually are fulfilled uh, not only in the first coming of Christ, but in the second coming of Christ, which sometimes in that prophetic outlook of the Old Testament especially are spoken of as if they take place together while it's actually separated in time. Now when we look at this language and we, we take uh, this language literally in terms of the, 
the emphatic assurance of the complete deliverance of Jerusalem and the destruction of all the nations, we have to recognize that there is no historical event that yet matches this description. There is no historical event that involved the utter defeat of uh, literal enemies of, uh, of Israel as a, as a nation state or as a people. Not through the wars of the Maccabees. Interesting exploits in which no doubt God, through uh, the leaders of Israel, waged war very successfully against the Syrians and they, they won many decisive battles. It was very significant in history. But that doesn't fulfill this prophecy. The reestablishment of Israel as a state in 1948. That was not the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Six-Day War in which the nation of Israel actually defeated a coalition of Arabic states that came against them in 1967. That was not the fulfillment of this prophecy. Well, what does it refer to? Well, most prophecy books today will say that this is yet future. There is yet a time coming before uh, the end in which all the nations of the earth will be gathered literally against the literal city of Jerusalem and Jerusalem is going to defeat them all. Now that's based supposedly on, a, on an insistence of a literal interpretation of this passage. I said, okay. Well, that also means that this battle is not going to be uh, fought with tanks or bombs or guns or nuclear arms or missiles, but horses. Right? That's how it describes their defeat in verse 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the people with blindness. Well, that's not literal. Well, perhaps, in view of the nature of biblical prophecy, we should, we should consider how this prophecy is actually interpreted in the New Testament itself. Where you find that a lot of literal sounding prophecies are actually fulfilled in a much greater, but a figurative way. That's much deeper, actually much more profound. Now, this is a prophecy that is to be received by faith for us. This is a prophecy that was to be received by faith for those who first heard it. And that means that it's, an, it's a prophecy that encouraged the Jews of Zechariah's day to trust in God. In the midst of their weakness, as those who dwelt in tents. Yes, many of them in a very vulnerable situation in which the walls of Jerusalem had not yet been rebuilt. And there's reference to these tents in this passage. They dwelt in tents. They faced hostile neighbors with the glory of David's house departed. There was no king upon the throne in Jerusalem in a palace with military might and power. But the mighty God, he will defend them. 
And they're to take comfort in that. The mighty God will raise up courageous leaders. Courageous leaders who believe indeed that God is with his people. Described in verses 5 and 6 in terms of governors. Well, Nehemiah was such a governor, wasn't he? This prophecy was intended to be received by faith in those who initially heard it. And to take comfort and derive confidence in the almighty God and his power to protect them and to deliver them from their enemies in their circumstances. And it's a prophecy that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the way it describes the house of David in that day. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God. Like the angel of the Lord before them. The glory, the power of the house of David will have a divine character. Like the angel of the Lord. Well, actually, that's, that's fulfilled when the one who is the son of David, but who is also true and eternal God, will reign on the throne of David, as he does now, having been exalted to the throne of David in the heavens. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is that even the weakest among his people uh, have the courage of faith, like David, the literal David there in the Psalms. Everyone, however feeble, will be strong. And the glory of the house of David will be the exalted Christ, ruling among all his people, ruling among and over his church, over whom he is head. A church made up of Jews and a church made up of Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles in one house, in one spiritual kingdom, in the heavenly Jerusalem. That is, the Jerusalem as described in the New Testament itself. In the book of Galatians, where that Jerusalem, which is above, is described as the mother of us all, whether Jews or Gentiles. Or in the book of, of Hebrews, that speaks of believers as having come to this Jerusalem, which is above. The Mount Zion, to which we all belong as believers in Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem, which now is, Paul says, is in bondage with her children. But we belong presently to this heavenly city. We belong to this holy city of God. It's a city that will come down from heaven, prepared as a bride. Well, that's the language of the church, isn't it? And that's the way uh, the book of Revelation describes this church which will appear in its resplendent glory under the imagery of Jerusalem. And so in the light of the New Testament, 
We're not embarrassed at all. We're not ashamed at all to say, well, even this language with respect to the deliverance of Jerusalem refers to the church. You want a climactic description of God rescuing his church? Well, let's turn to the New Testament. Let's, let's turn to the book of Revelation that describes that in chapter uh, 19, when it says in, or in chapter 20, where it says in verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, well, that thousand years, that refers to the time of Christ's reign. In other words, it's not a literal thousand years, it's a very long time. In fact, the, the a reign of our Lord Jesus Christ took place upon his exaltation and session at the right hand of God, in which he was made head over all things for the church. And he has ruled so that Satan has no longer deceived the nations. But here we are, Gentiles, way up here north in Edmonton, Alberta, worshiping the king. And Christ has a people throughout the world whom he has rescued from Satan's power delivered from deception, gathered unto himself, made members of this holy city. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Yes, the Bible speaks of this little season of Satan in which there will be a falling away in which there will be the revelation of the man of sin, in which there will be united opposition against the kingdom of Christ and his church, described here. It says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Yes, when there is, when there is this final assault against the church of Jesus Christ, the Lord is going to defeat them and rescue his people with an ultimate, absolute, final deliverance. And you know, throughout the history of the church, as God delivered his people, as he rescued them by faith, they were able to see a preview of that deliverance to come. That final, absolute, ultimate deliverance that this passage looks forward to. See, that's what it means to receive these prophecies also by faith. That's how we read the scriptures, like when we read Psalm 103 and it says of God's mercy that he forgives all your iniquities and he heals all your diseases. People suffering with cancer or other forms of sickness. They hear those promises. And they pray for God's deliverance and help. And, and sometimes they're given a reprieve. Sometimes there's actually a, a restoration to health. But every deliverance, every rescue that takes place in this age is like a preview, a foretaste of what's to come. And ultimately that is where the hope and the faith of God's church is fixed. This prophecy of hope was not some limited to some temporal deliverance. Ultimately it, ultimately, it extends to that final and absolute deliverance of God for his people. And that means that the prophecy is, equip, is to equip the church in every age to live by faith 
in complete deliverance. And this message must not be lost. It must not be obscured by the figurative language that is used in this, that is characteristically used in, in prophecies. Because the point of the language is simple, and that is that whatever opposition uh, of the world that we face, whatever the gates of hell, whatever the power of hell can throw at us, ultimately we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The defeat of all opposition. That's what we look forward to. That's what the saints looked forward to down through the generations. In connection with that, we have this assurance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, we read, And I will pour out, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now we ought to have no doubt that this is a promise of the Holy Spirit. And it's a promise of the Holy Spirit's coming with great effusion and abundance. That's the language of pour out, right? It's the very language that Joel uses in chapter 2 uh, when he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And that's what was fulfilled at Pentecost, according to Peter's sermon. This was the fulfillment of that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. The pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh. Now in that context, they were, they were Jews. Of Israel. Some of them from the house of David. But that wasn't the extent of this outpouring. It was an outpouring that was for all nations, upon all flesh. Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever Christ is made known, known and people receive this message, they receive the Holy Spirit who's poured out upon them individually. The Spirit... The spirit of grace and supplication. And here is language that I would strongly encourage you to memorize. To remember as a precious, as a wonderful description of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of grace and supplication. Because there's nothing that sinners need more than grace. The unmerited favor of God. His mercy. And we need a lot of it. We need to be soaked in it. We need to be saturated with it. We need grace that really enters our lives. The grace of illumination. The Holy Spirit's work that gives clarity and conviction as to the truth of God's word. We need the spirit of forgiveness. We need the Holy Spirit of transformation. Transformation into believing, humble, gracious people. You see, the Holy Spirit communicates all grace to us. 
He works inwardly by the word, producing faith, hope, and love. It's the spirit who takes the things of Christ and makes them known to us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual light to our darkened souls and who awakens longings and prayers for more. The Spirit of grace and supplication. The Holy Spirit moves us to pray. He not only communicates grace, but He is the author of those prayers that arise from these enlightened, renewed hearts who have awakened to their need, who believe in the riches that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they begin to supplicate. They begin to ask. Yes, supplication is a certain kind of prayer. It's asking from a, from a sense of need. It's humble entreaty with feelings and expressions of want. It's the Abba, Father kind of prayer that the Holy Spirit produces in the hearts of children. It's prayer like Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, we're told, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. And the Holy Spirit produces such earnest prayer after grace and help. The Spirit of grace and supplication. Do you know Him? Do you know Him as the Spirit of Christ who dwells within your hearts? Who produces a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Who moves you to cry to God for help and mercy and strength. You see that's different than saying your prayers. I'm not asking if you say your prayers. Yes, Christians say their prayers. And Christians pray because God commands it. And they don't always feel. And they don't always experience to the same extent. The spirit of grace and supplication that moves them with intense and earnest longings, encouraged by faith and a sense of the riches of God's grace that lead them to call upon Him. But every Christian is indwelt by this Spirit. The Spirit who teaches them to pray. And if you don't know that Spirit... Well then hear, hear the voice of wisdom. Hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who cries out publicly, who cries to you this morning and says, how long, you simple ones, how long will you be content with your simplistic answers to life's issues whereby you dismiss the claims of Christ upon you? How long will you resort to evolutionary theory? That provides an excuse for people to dismiss the reality of God the creator to whom they must give an account. How long will they hate knowledge and never search the scriptures because they don't like what it says? 
How long will they be cynical? How long will they scorn at the truth and mock it rather than humble themselves under it? Turn at my rebuke, says wisdom. Turn, repent. Repent of your confidence in your wisdom. Repent of your willfulness that says, I'm going to go my own way. And turn to me and I will pour out my spirit upon you and make my words known to you. Yes, wisdom, the Lord Jesus Christ, promises, offers such grace to those who come to him in their need. What a wonderful assurance is given here. What a wonderful description of the Holy Spirit that we should learn to plead the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and with that the grace of repentance. Verse 9 is quoted in the New Testament. It shall be in that day or rather uh, in verse 10 it says I will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication then they will look on me whom they pierced. Now, that's quoted in the Gospel of John in connection with the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. John bore witness to what happened. He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you might believe. Believe what? Believe that the Scriptures were fulfilled in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those scriptures was uh, from the book of the law. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Another one says they shall look on him whom they pierced. Referring to what just happened, right? When this soldier took a spear and he pierced the side of the Lord Jesus and blood and water came out. Giving testimony to the reality of his death. And that's quoted as that which is being fulfilled. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That's the language of Zechariah, right? Look upon me. It's the Lord who's speaking. There's a, there's a change of, of pronoun here. Was that a mistake? Did John misquote? No, the me who speaks in Zechariah is the him whom they looked upon. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, for those initial hearers of this prophecy, they are to hear God rebuking his people for in effect piercing him by their rebellion against him, by their unbelief. But that assault upon God came to a literal fulfillment when the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, was literally pierced by a sword or a spear. He allowed himself to be pierced. And it says they will look on him, truly, literally. People saw it. And many would also come to look on him not simply as those who saw what happened, 
but as those who would look on him by faith. In fact, thousands at Pentecost. And a short time after that, many more thousands of Jews, people from Jerusalem, they came to grips with the reality that Jesus Christ is the one in whom this prophecy was fulfilled. In fact, down through the centuries, untold thousands would see the Son of God revealed in the scripture, portrayed as crucified in the preaching of the gospel. And they would believe on him. And one thing that they all have in common is the grace of repentance. Some of the features are spelled out here. They would take responsibility for their sin. Now, actually, the Jews literally uh, did not pierce the side of our Savior. It was a Gentile soldier. But it was the Jews that insisted upon it. In that sense, they all had a hand in it. And they're charged with it. Christ being delivered up by the by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified him. And believers said, yes, we're responsible for it. We clamored for his death. And even more deeply and more profoundly, you and I are responsible for it. Not because we had a hand in it literally, not that we were there clamoring for his death, but the reason for his death and the wonderful counsel and mercy of God was to make payment for our sins. It's our sins that required the death of the Son of God. In that sense, he was pierced by us, pierced for us. And we ought to be deeply affected by that. That's another feature of evangelical repentance, right? It's not just remorse. It's not a desire to escape judgment. It's from those who have been deeply affected by the reality of their sin against God and deeply affected by what it cost the Son of God to make atonement for their sins. Verse 10 and 11 describe uh, the effects of such an awakening. It says, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there should be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, the plain of Megiddo was where Josiah, the king, was killed and that produced great mourning among Israel. But in fact, it's a place of battle where many parents would go and see the corpses of their dead sons who died on this place of battle. And so it was an intense kind of grief and mourning that's described here as a result of repentance before God. It says, yes, it was my sin that required such a sacrifice. Now, my interest is not uh, uh, holding you to an account for how many tears you shed or uh, how intense and extravagant your grief is. No, no. 
the common feature of true repentance is that believers are deeply and profoundly affected by the reality of their sin and what it costs the Lord Jesus to deliver us from it. I think part of the feature of that repentance is that we hardly realize adequately what that means. Repentance is also deeply personal. Many people may be converted together. I mean, that happened uh, on the day of Pentecost and thereafter. Many thousands came to faith. But for every sinner who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was also a very individual and a very private kind of thing in terms of the activities of the heart before God. And that's what this passage describes. It describes every classes among the people. The Levites, the priestly class, the royal class. But then it's clear that it includes all these families. It's not limited to one group. But one thing they have in common is that they appear to go and grieve by themselves. And that indicates, again, the personal, very personal nature of repentance. That's why it's one of the reasons I've always been averse to a kind of programmatic way of leading people to Christ because they appear to be affected under conviction. And many have said, oh, now's the opportunity. Now's the time to get them to pray the sinner's prayer. Well, people can be emotionally worked up for a whole lot of reasons. And it's rather dangerous to uh, try to orchestrate a conversion by saying, okay, you prayed this prayer with me, and now that you've prayed it, you're saved. You don't know what's going on in the hearts of people. Are you able to distinguish between remorse and true conviction? Are you able to distinguish between an emotional response of fear of hell and a deep and profound awareness of your sin before God? No, no, sometimes far better to say, You go home, you enter your closet, and you cry out to God. There's no indication of scripture that people need coaching, that they need words put in their mouths when it comes to repentance. They don't have to be eloquent, but a sinner under conviction knows how to say, God, save me, be merciful to me. They don't need a a prescribed prayer often followed by an assurance that deceives many. Rely upon the Holy Spirit of grace and supplication. If he's bringing people to faith, he'll give them words to speak, or he'll give them silent cries of their hearts that God will hear. God saves God saves us ultimately from all our enemies, and God saves us from our worst enemy, which is ourselves. The greatest mercy is to awaken to our need for mercy. And when that happens, the spirit of grace and supplication is at work. And then the Lord Jesus Christ becomes precious as the beloved Son who is pierced for us in whom we trust. That's the grace, the grace of repentance. Everyone will sorrow. 
Everyone will sorrow for sin, ultimately, in one way or another. This passage of Zechariah is quoted in, uh, again in the New Testament in a, in a different context. In Revelation chapter 1, it says, Behold, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. It's like every knee shall bow to the Lord Jesus. And we know what it's like to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ in worship and faith in this life. Or we will bow to the Lord Jesus when he comes as avenging judge and king. And every knee will acknowledge that he is God and Lord. And it appears that every, every eye will see this one who is pierced and they will mourn. And for how many will it be a mourning of desperation because it is too late, too late to take refuge in those wounds. And the one who died now appears as an avenging judge upon those who did not believe the gospel of salvation and hide themselves in those wounds and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Everyone will mourn for sin in one way or another. There will be an eternal mourning for sin in hell. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth for the reality of guilt and judgment that is inescapable forever. Woe to those, Jesus says, who laugh now, for they shall weep and mourn. Woe to those who go through life seeking their own pleasure. Woe to those who laugh in mockery at the truth. Woe to those who think life is just a lark. They'll weep. Blessed are those who weep. There's a lot of things to weep for. There's a lot of things to be sad for in this world. Sad for the injustice that we see. Sad for the misery of others. Sad for our own sins. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep now, Jesus said. For they shall laugh. Our mouths will be filled with laughter when God brings back the captivity of his people. We'll be like those who dream. We'll say the Lord indeed has done great things for us. Wherein we are glad. It'll be an everlasting joy of gladness, an ultimate, absolute, complete deliverance. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by turning to sing together number 286. Number 286, all the stanzas.
Let us join together in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we give thanks to you and praise your name for this blessed hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. The certainty of victory, that indeed we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Whatever opposition we face, whatever power of this world and of hell that would crush and destroy us, we thank you that in the midst of weariness, in the midst of discouragement, yet we have a sure foundation for confidence and hope. Lord, we thank you also that in the midst of the, these enticements of the world and of our own sinful nature that would, that would put us to sleep, that you arouse us, that you awaken us to seek your kingdom and righteousness, and you would deliver us more and more from formality in our faith, formality in our prayers and in our church attendance, that we would come with expectation. We would seek your spirit of grace and supplication to refresh us anew, to give us times of refreshing as individuals and as a church from your presence. Father, we pray that you would help us also then to see our sins as that which required the death of your beloved Son, that we might more and more be affected by that, that we might hate our sin, that we might forsake it, that we might love the Savior. We live in a time in which lawlessness abounds on every hand, and we recognize the great danger and the certain consequence for so many that their love grows cold, their love for your worship, their love for your people, their love for your word and your ways. Lord, deliver us from that chill. Inflame our zeal. May we be fervent in faith and prayer. Many fall away. Lord, our hearts uh, grieve for loved ones whom we fear have turned aside from your word. We pray that in your mercy you would convict them, fill their hearts with fear. May they awaken to the reality of judgment to come unless they find refuge and deliverance in Christ. Bring them into deep conviction by the power of your spirit. And bring them unto yourself, we pray. Father, to this end, we ask that you would bless the continued work of preparing men for the gospel ministry. We pray that you would call men to seek such preparation. We realize that uh, the gifts and the calling come from you. They can be helped and they can be honed by seminary training, but they can't be imparted by any, uh, any other power than your spirit. We pray that you would raise up many to proclaim this glorious gospel. And may it continue to be uh, proclaimed throughout the world. Continue to gather people. Continue to gather them into this fellowship of the heavenly city. That they might know what it means to be in the company of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That they might be brought admission into this new world. Where they have fellowship with the saints throughout ages past. With a fellowship with the angels. In worship, Lord, we thank you for this wondrous grace, and may we live by faith in it. We ask then that you would bless our offering, that it might serve for the advance of your kingdom, and that you would also bless your word to the comfort of those who are sick and uh, who are perhaps suffering from chronic pain in the way that that affects their minds and spirits. Lord, encourage them, strengthen them. We pray for Diana Ludwig. This time of great weakness, as she also experiences confusion of mind, we pray that 
you would be very near to her help. She might know your presence and be sustained in her weakness. We pray for all those who are uh, unable to come to worship because of sickness. Minister to them according to the means that they have, we pray. And hear us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This time our offerings will be received first for the budget and secondly for Mid-America Reform Seminary. And by let us now turn for our doxology, concluding our service by singing Psalm 117. Psalm 117a, praise Jehovah all ye nations. now the Lord's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.